Listener Production. Hi, just just before we jump into this week's story, a heads up, there is a little bit of a twist along the way that involves some discussion of a suicide attempt. Um, So if this feels like it's one that you'll want to skip, then we totally understand, of course. And just a reminder that Lifeline is always there if you feel you need to reach out for help. Their number is 131114. Take it away, my dulcet toned Adonis. Perfect. Nailed. (laughs) Went okay? Perfect. Yes. Couldn't be better. Hello and welcome to Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which ordinarily Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to discuss at a dinner party. As you all know, Rosie's taking a little break for a few more weeks and so we've got a roster of some extra special guest judges coming on board. And this week we have... Simon Lovett, I believe is your last name. We've only just met today, so we're really <laughs> going through the first date, blind date motions of um, getting to know one another. Welcome, Simon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I uh, I appreciate being here. It was fun watching you get to that sentence where you had to say my name as the panic started to mount, because I knew that you knew my first name, <laughs> but I was wondering how you'd go with the last name, because I'm notoriously bad with names, mm-hmm. so... I, I definitely, I've forgotten your last name already and you said it in the last sentence and watching you get close, you just started to panic and the inflection went up and then you clocked on Love It and it was like, oh, you good job. Well done. Yes. You nailed it. Yes, yes, yes. I don't know where I dug that out from. That was amazing. For the last few weeks, I've been telling everyone that I'm doing the podcast with Simon from Adam and Simon. There you go. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you are Simon from Adam and Simon, which oh. is another podcast here on the Listener Network. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure you'll tell us a bit about that, but before we get into it, can you give us just the gist of who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm Simon Lovett. Um, I I am actually a, I'm a physiotherapist by trade. That's mm. my day job, mm-hmm. and then all of my other jobs that I do are all a bit of a side hustle, which mm-hmm. is quite fun. So one of those is to be the co-host on the Adam and Simon Show podcast, mm-hmm. which is also on Listener, mm-hmm. um, and I do that with my uh, my really really good friend Adam Denston, who people may know from Gogglebox. We are Adam and Simon on Gogglebox. We're the the young ones, but not the gay ones. That's generally <laughs> the best description for who we are. Um, we were friends at uni for a year, and then we were um, we were at a pub in Flemington for those people from Melbourne, uh, which is just across the road from Melbourne Uni, which is where we went, and mm. uh, with all of our mates, and and someone was standing there with a clipboard, and we're like, "This is so weird! Like, what are they doing?" And then we were. We were very drunk by the end of the time and mm-hmm. that, someone came over and said, oh, we've got a show. You guys would be great for it. It's the best. And <laughs> like, yeah, and then we're like, this would be, and we're like, to this is to all 10 of our friends and they like, it'd be great. You guys will be great. This is fantastic. And mm-hmm. we, well, we were at university, so we were snobs. We were like big snobs and we're like, okay, what's it about? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's watching people watch television. We're like, you, oh, you're the worst. You're <laughs> ruining people's minds. This is horrible. <laughs> we're better than you, blah, blah, blah. They're like, oh, it's great. I promise it's won all these awards and mm. it's going to be great. And and then and then the next day, Adam actually woke up in his bed wearing the same pants that he went out in. <laughs> and in the bed was like the card of the person. Uh-huh. And then he sent a message to all of our mates and mm. I was the most positive in my response. And I just said, I'll go on it if you do all the admin. Uh-huh. And it's been eight years and he's still doing all the admin. And, and we kind of have been on the show and, yeah, it's been two seasons a year and I think season 16 starts 
like September this year, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Cool. So you're obviously enjoying it. Love it. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. It's really fun. It started off, it's funny, the the progression's been, it started off as a real novelty, um, you know, bit of, bit of way to get extra cash, good way to be on TV. I think the reason we actually said yes was because we might get to go to the Logies and drink free beers. Mm-hmm. That was like the original motivator. And then through the midsection, it got like a bit of a job and you're like, oh, this is just like work. This is a grind. And now it's back to being a novelty and you get to hang out with your friend, and uh-huh. that, which I think lockdown's probably made that worthwhile, which is nice. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. Have you made it to the Logies though? So we went the first year we mm. snuck in, um, we watched it on TV and Gogglebox won an, won an award. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, we just won. We can go. We're allowed to go. So we put on suits <laughs> and then we drove to Crown or got a taxi to Crown and then just kind of walked around mm. until we found a party. And then we were like, oh, I think this is this is one of them. And we walked in um, and Colin Fasnich from, who at the time was on My Kitchen Rules, mm. walked up to us and said, like, what are you guys doing here? This is Channel 7's party. And we're like, oh, we're not even supposed to be anywhere. So we snuck into that one and then eventually we got into some other ones, Foxtel and Channel 10, and it was really fun. And then the second year we got invited back, which was really nice. So, uh-huh. And then we um, accepted an award, which was very kind of them to let us do, especially after we broke all of the rules and just went to the first one when we were not allowed to and caused a lot of headaches for a lot of people in charge. Rosie thinks she would be absolutely phenomenal yes. on Gogglebox. What advice would you have for her to be a successful Gogglebox participant, star? Yeah. Partic- yeah, yeah, p- participant, I think. Mm. Um, I think you just have to talk a lot. I don't know. That's our tactic. Oh, she's got that down Great, pat. perfect. Mm. Well, she would be perfect then. Mm. Yeah, because as I said, they've just got to find a good three minutes. So we try to give them a really average eight hours and then hopefully with some bells and whistles and a bit of magic, they can Mm -hmm. make it a good three minutes. So maybe volume talking. That's my only tip. Got it. Keep going. Before we get into today's story, give us the gist of what your podcast, The Adam and Simon Show, is all about. It's basically two friends having an interesting conversation at the pub Mm -hmm. that you kind of want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of hear it out of the corner of the eye and you're like, this is funny. I want to keep listening to this. Mm -hmm. And it's that. So there's a bit of like, you know, shit hanging on each other and we'll bring like an interesting, you know, story or mm-hmm. Adam's just had a baby. So we've got a lot of fodder from that, which is yes. great. Watching him become a new dad is hysterical. Mm-hmm. For me, it's hysterical. So, and it would be like, you know, you're sitting at the pub and you're watching a guy who's just had a baby chat to his mates about what that's like. Uh-huh. That's that's our show. Well, let's talk about the baby thing because I know you've been um, providing him with some parenting Tips, yes. and I can fully relate. By the way, a lot of my friends over the last few years have been participating in this baby apocalypse, where it's Big just time. so bizarre for me to watch these people that I've been drinking in excess with it's for strange, most isn't it? of my life. They're now responsible for these tiny little babies. Um, yes, it is bizarre, and I wanted to ask you of all the parenting advice that you've been harvesting from TikTok. Mm. Could you tell us maybe the most helpful and the least helpful piece of advice you've had to pass on to Adam? The most helpful is you've got to get a nappy. If you ever go to the beach, you get a like a clean nappy mm. and you put your items in the clean nappy and then you put the nappy up mm. and then you leave that. You can leave that anywhere because no one's ever <laughs> stealing like a dirty nappy and it just has all your stuff in it. So like that's great. I was like, that is perfect. That's like, yeah, that's proper. Oh, That's really useful. 
So that's the most useful by a fairly Jeez. substantial margin. Um, a lot of the other advice I've given him appears to be for toddlers. I don't know why I've got like more toddler TikToks flying around on my phone, but uh-huh. or toddler advice because they're all about like talking and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and I mean, the most useless one is, you know, I give him ones about like how to make your kid plays. Like I've got a six week old, like she does nothing. <laughs> she just lies there. Like I don't need this for like three years. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, sure. No worries. No worries. So anything toddler related that I just am like, oh, they're all the same. Okay. Kids are all the same. You'll need this. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. all, that's all useless. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got a gateway drug episode that you'd recommend to our listeners mm. that um, they should start with if they want to test out the Adam and Simon show, which one would you say? Uh, scroll right back. I think it's season two. There's an episode called Seven Apples and Two Lasagnas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the background of that is, I think the episode before, I just randomly kind of said that apples make me hungry. Uh-huh. So when I eat an apple, I get hungry. Uh-huh. And then Adam's natural logic was to take that and say, well, if you have more apples, are you more hungry? Uh-huh. How hungry are you? Uh-huh. So then the episode after that, uh, throughout the episode, we have a regular episode, but while that's happening, I eat seven apples in a row <laughs> and then I eat two Coles lasagnas <laughs> at the same time. So seven apples, two lasagnas. Um, oh. Yeah, that's that's like, that's our peak. That's great. That like sums up our show perfectly. Like, oh, this makes this. Okay, prove it. Okay. So that's that's kind of, we're actually currently working on nine apples, one burrito. Um <laughs> Because Adam stumbled across a, a Mexican restaurant that sells a one kilo burrito, no. and he's like, "Well, if you get, well, you probably need that nine apples to have that." So baby. we're starting to work on me eating nine apples and a one kilo burrito. That's okay. coming up. Go check that out, everyone. Okay, you ready to get into the story? Let's do it. This is the story of a bank robbery that was so unnecessarily convoluted and complicated that parts of it still remain unsolved, and they'll probably never ever be solved. The robber walked into a bank branch with a bomb clamped around his neck. Ten minutes later, he walked out with about $8,000 cash, and then within an hour, he was dead. And then all of the folks, pretty much, who were involved in this case ended up dying over the next several years as well. So this is just the gist of what we know and what we think we might know about the collar bomb heist that happened in Erie, Pennsylvania, also known as the Pizza Bomber heist. And we'll get into talking about the role that pizza played in this as well. Are you familiar? I've never heard of this story, but I'm so unbelievably in. It's ridiculous. Okay. So, on the afternoon of August 28th, 2003, this middle-aged white man named Brian Wells walked into a PNC bank in Erie, Pennsylvania, He had short grey hair, thinning on top. He was wearing big 80s-style glasses, unironically, and he was carrying a cane. He wasn't using the cane to support him. He was just sort of swinging the cane. He was also wearing this oversized white T-shirt with the word Guess printed across the chest. Guess the brand? Guess the brand, although it's suspected that this T-shirt was a homemade counterfeit job. Version of guess. Kind of a graffiti kind of vibe to oh, it. What a strange counterfeit shirt. Hmm. Well, they think that the, the reason that they'd printed guess on there was so you had to, it was encouraging you to guess what was underneath the t-shirt oh. because he had this big bulge on his chest about the size of like a couple of phone books. Okay. If anyone remembers 
them. DVD Big. player. <laughs> Shoebox. Um, PlayStation 2. Yes. Thereabouts. Brian stood in line waiting for a teller to summon him over and when he got to the front of the queue after a few minutes, he handed over a few pages of very long, very detailed handwritten notes that were addressed to the teller and some were addressed to the bank manager. And those notes basically said this big ridiculous bulge around this guy's neck is a bomb and it's going to explode and it's going to kill everyone in here in the next 15 minutes unless you hand over all the cash you have in the vault downstairs to him. Was the bomb, sorry, was the bomb like fastened to him or was he just wearing it as a necklace? Uh, Kind of both. If you can imagine, it turned out to be kind of like a handcuff for the size of somebody's neck and then this big rectangular box was sort of welded to it. Gotcha. They couldn't really see that at this time because he had the guest T-shirt, so he had to lift up the shirt (laughs) to show the teller. Can you imagine you walk into a bank with a bomb (laughs) and you go, I've got a bomb, and they go, prove it. Mm -hmm. Not just like, yeah, I believe it. It's like, prove it. I don't Mm -hmm. believe you. And he had to flash it. How, like, just emasculating. (laughs) I don't believe you. Prove it. And also your shirt's fake. Yeah. You should be embarrassed. (laughs) Yeah. You look terrible, mate. Uh Uh-huh. The instructions were keep calm, do not call the cops under any circumstances. Of course. Just go and tell the manager or whoever can access the most cash, I'm not leaving here until I've got a minimum Mm. of $250,000. Now, while she was reading, Brian started casually sucking on a lollipop that he helped himself to from the bowl that the teller had on her counter. Keep in mind this was a pre-COVID world. When she finished reading the note, the teller was like, okay, so the manager's not here and none of us can get into the big safe out the back, but I will give you all the cash that I have here in my drawer if you just leave. And Brian was like, okay, if that's the best you can do, I'll take it. You know what? I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Brian's just like, you know what? Why would you lie to me, Mm -hmm. actually? Like, we're not in a lying game here. I'll just, yeah, you know what, whatever you've got's fine. Yep, which turned out to be $8,702 Not enough to steal a bank, rob a bank, I wouldn't have thought. But better than nothing. He wasn't leaving empty-handed. He had that cash and he had his lollipop that he was still sucking on as he casually strolled out to his car, swinging that cane, and he drove a few hundred metres down the road to where else? When you've just successfully robbed a bank wearing a suicide vest, your next stop is going to be... McDonald's. McDonald's, yes. It was McDonald's. Yes, you are absolutely That's correct. That's funny. He pulled into the car park at McDonald's, got out of his car, went and found something that had been hidden in the flower bed, got still back the into bomb his car, still had the bomb on, and then went to drive off again. This is only a few minutes after he's left the bank. His car was instantly surrounded by cop cars and dozens of cops were pointing their guns at him in the space of seconds. So, of course, he got out of his vehicle, hands in the air, and if anything, he looked relieved that they'd pulled him over. I wonder what he got from the flower pot. Do we get to that in the story? We will, yes. It ends up being further instructions of where he needed to go Ah. next. Yes. Um, so he told the cops, look, I'm pretty sure that this is a live bomb. Can you please help remove it? Oh, so he's not crying or not remorseful. He's just like, sure, man, I've yeah. run out of lollipop and you've <laughs> got to get this thing off me. He's 
quite sort of calm and measured and he was explaining, I didn't put this bomb on my own neck. I'm just following the instructions I've been given to try to save my own life. Interesting. A couple of the cops got close enough to put handcuffs on him because that's the obvious next step. Then they cut open the fake guest shirt so they could take a look at this ticking metal box clamped around his neck. And once they'd had a decent look, they ran back to their cars to tell their colleagues and say, yep, can confirm, looks bomb. enough like a bomb. We're going to have to take this seriously. What the hell? Called in the bomb squad. How do you go as the first cop on duty who's like, oh, just go look at it? Like He said he has a bomb on his neck. Yeah. He said it's a like a live bomb. And they're like, mm, prove it. Who's the lowest ranked guy? Like, what are we doing here? Send him in. Surely that's not like protocol. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that that's like the cops are like, yeah, OH&S, perfect. Just go look at this thing. If there's anything we've learned in the last few years, it's the cops in America don't necessarily go through the most rigorous training processes and well don't always yeah. make the best decisions. That's a good point. That's yeah. a very good point. Their next step after they'd called the bomb squad was closing the roads nearby and clearing out all the civilians from the area. Brian was told to stay seated on the ground while the cops kept their distance and tucked themselves away behind their cars for safety. And they were close enough to Brian that they could have a conversation with him (laughs) and he could explain everything that had happened. And he told the cops he'd been at his work in town, which was a pizza shop called Mamma Mia. This is the pizza place. There we go. Interesting. He was a pizza delivery guy, yes. And someone had called in an order for two pizzas to be delivered to an address that Brian had never delivered to before, even though he'd been working at Mamma Mia's as a delivery boy for well over a decade. Brian gets this request for two pepperoni and sausage pizzas. He had to write down the directions for how to get where he was going. So he's got the address to the person of the phone call. Well, it's not where they lived. So when he got there, he was really surprised to find that it wasn't a residence at all. It was a TV transmission tower at the end of this long dirt road. Classic. And he said when he got out of the car to hand the pizzas over, a group of black men that he'd never seen before held him up at gunpoint, clamped the bomb around his neck, and they told him he was going to be going to rob a bank for them. And if he didn't follow their plans exactly... They would detonate the bomb remotely. They'd be watching him every step of the way to make sure he was doing what he'd been instructed to do. That's scary. They gave him pages of instructions that were addressed to him as the bomb hostage to follow, as well as pages he had to hand over to the teller at the bank, and then also some pages he had to give to the cops if he got caught. What a reliance on like literacy skills. Right. For everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Risky by the bomb, people. And I'll tell you now, you can... Read all of these notes. Can you? Written out. Yeah, they're all available on the internet. I'll put a You're link there. You're joking. They are very, very verbose. You can tell that Oscar the person Wilde who wrote, wrote them along those lines, someone who aspires to be something like that Grouse. level of intellectual. Um, and so, yeah, you can tell that this person's really showing off their vocabulary. They're like, they're going to make a movie about me one day. Yeah. I'm going to make it good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wasn't thinking about the sense of urgency that people are going to have when they really <laughs> just need to get the point yeah, it's of like, what the is the letter. goal of this? Uh-huh. Uh, the gist of the instructions for the bomb hostage were basically rob the bank and then followed this very elaborate set of directions to get to four different locations around the town. And at each location, you'll find one of the four keys you'll need to be able to open the lock around your neck and save your life. And they handed him the cane, told him it was a gun that he'd be able to use to shoot anyone who tried to stop him when he got to the bank. Did it look like a cane or a gun? 
Look like a cane. It looked like a cane. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily guess to look at it that it was a gun, but later what? on the cops would find out, sure enough, it was a fully functioning firearm. It was? Mm-hmm. The cane was actually a gun? Yep. He didn't discharge it at any point, but he could have had he pulled the trigger. Yep. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. This is wild. Uh-huh. Now, they told him he would start with 55 minutes on the timer before the bomb detonated, but along the way, if he was clever enough, he'd be able to find some clues that would help him buy some extra time to be able to complete the scavenger Sounds hunt like a video and game. get the bomb. Sounds like an, a movie of uh, Saw yeah. instalment. Yeah, right? that's a good point. This is very, very macabre. and It's pretty grim, but very well thought out. Oh, yeah. Whoever planned this had spent a lot of time on it. Yeah. They armed the bomb, they put the guest T-shirt over it and sent Brian on his way to the bank, racing against the clock. And Brian told the cops all the notes that were going to prove what he was saying were in his car. So one of them carefully went to his vehicle to fetch them and they started reading over them, which of course... Ran out of 55 minutes, Brian died, unfortunately. It's very sad. (laughs) That's basically where we're headed, yep. Um, As they read, they figured out where some of the locations were where the keys might be hidden. So they thought it'd be a good idea to deploy some of the cops to go there and see if they could find the keys and bring them back. And at the same time, they were all sort of thinking the same thing, though. They were like, this guy's maybe a nutter and maybe he's faking it. I mean, look at his shirt. Surely, (laughs) who gets around like that? This must be a hoax. Oh, my gosh. And they thought that particularly because Brian was surprisingly chilled while he was explaining yeah, yeah, yeah. to the cops. Every now and then a little bit of urgency would sort of creep into his voice when he'd ask them to please, please, please cut the bomb off his neck. But for the most part, his tone, his demeanour, everything very sort of measured and calm particularly for someone that you would expect to be totally frantic who was claiming that he'd been jumped by a group of strangers who'd forcibly attached an explosive to his torso. The bomb squad were still on their way. They'd been slowed down a bit by the road closures nearby. And the people who closed the road, the cops there, you know, there's like, I'm looking for a key. It's like, sorry, mate, road's closed. Yeah. Can't Mm -hmm. help you. But I'm one of you. No, no, can't up you. <laughs> Sorry, mate. The boss has said can't up you. Yep. Took them quite I'm a joking. while to clear a path for them to be able to get there. But you know who was there on the scene from the early stages? The news media. They had sent out their reporters and camera people to cover the incident as soon as they caught wind of the bank robbery. Is there video footage on. of all of this? There certainly is. Yep. This whole bizarre scenario, this guy with a bomb strapped around his neck sitting in the middle of a car park surrounded by cops was being broadcast live all across America. What? And about 30 minutes after Brian had first been handcuffed by the cops, that's when the bomb started to beep. And his demeanour then sort of shifted towards anxiety. He was pleading with the cops, please get this bomb off me. I'm running out of time. And the cops told him once again they had to wait for the bomb squad because they couldn't do anything till they got there. According to the notes they'd read, the device was booby-trapped. So if anyone even tried to remove it without the keys, it was just going to blow. So they told him he just had to be patient. And then about a minute later, when the timer inside the device ticked down to the final second, the two pipe bombs inside the metal box exploded and Brian was killed pretty much instantly live on national TV with hundreds of thousands of people watching. 
everyone on the scene and everyone around the country who was at home watching were absolutely stunned. And this footage is still available on the internet and it's famously included in a documentary that Lindsay and I watched to research for this called Evil Genius. So just be prepared if you watch that documentary. There is no real warning. Just all of a sudden you see a man die after a series of beeps. Yes. That is full on. Yes. The pizza bomber case became the biggest news story all around the world. And... Even though Brian was dead now, more and more people were tuning in to see what was going to happen next. Now, the cops were still concerned there might be bombs, there might be booby traps, so no one went near Brian's body for a while until finally the bomb squad made their way through traffic. Where have you been, bomb squad? (laughs) You've got, like, I can't imagine the bomb squad's like, oh, we're out doing other bombs. Like... There's not a lot of bombs, Mm. I don't think. There's, like, you get called maybe once every six months. Yeah. What are you doing? That was your moment. Like, what are you doing? Yep. And you didn't have a contingency plan for bad traffic getting to an emergency like this. All right. First rule of bombs, we close all the roads. (laughs) Second rule of bombs, we have nothing to deal with the traffic. Like, what the hell is wrong with you? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They'd pretty much just been stuck around the corner for the last 20 or 30 minutes. How much do you reckon the bomb squad in the car are like, are we doing this? Are we really doing this? Are we doing this? This is we really doing it. And there'd be one hero who's like, this Mm. gentleman... This is what you've trained for. And then they get there and poor Brian, mm. bomb's gone off. They're like, oh, well, guess we go back to the sheds now. Oh, like, we missed it. Yeah. Oh, well, that was our chance. <sighs> See you in six months, guys. Remember the traffic. Keep it out of our way. <laughs> also, RIP, Brian. So yes. Must yes, be yes. acknowledged. Um, when the bomb squad were there and they were satisfied, it was safe to do so. They allowed Brian's body to be transported to the coroner's office with the collar bomb still attached around his neck so it could be removed and investigated thoroughly. And when the cops finished searching Brian's car, that's when they found the cane he'd been carrying in the bank and confirmed it was an operational shotgun. And, of course, there were lots of questions that needed to be answered. So if only there was someone alive who knew what had happened. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be very tricky to figure this one out. The investigation kicked off immediately and they had two sort of broad strokes theories. Number one, Brian was involved in the robbery, maybe acting alone, although highly unlikely Mm. he would have strapped that thing to himself. More confident that he was working with accomplices. And part of that theory was that the bomb actually detonating just wasn't part of the plan. Uh, The other theory was that Brian's story about the strangers forcing him to where the bomb and rob the bank was indeed true. Where does your, where, as you are researching this, where did your mind go first between those two? Brian involved, Brian not involved. Innocent. Surely. Not involved. Like no yeah. one, uh, that, that is outrageous that they would even think like, oh, maybe the bomb malfunctions. Like, well, maybe he probably didn't. Like even if you're involved, mm-hmm. you're not like, hey, when we do the bomb thing, mm-hmm. let's just make sure it's a fake one. Yeah. But right. they're like, no, 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 put a real one on so people believe that it's a real bomb. Oh, oh but it could kill you. No, 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 I'll risk it. I'm method. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm yeah. method. <laughs> I'm Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm ready to go. Like, they'll make a movie about this. It can't be fake. Uh-huh. What? Yeah. Got to be believable. I've got to experience real fear. Yeah, highly, highly unlikely, I thought, that this gotta guy be would be involved. But see if you feel the same way when we get to the end of this. Oh, my gosh. Now, the FBI, the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives Department and the state police all had to team up together like the Avengers to 
work on this case. They set up a task force of about 50 people to investigate. Step one, they had to go to all the locations listed in the instructional notes to look for evidence, obviously. And they found a few items at those locations, but they didn't find any helpful clues to help them out. Like they found an empty coffee container at one spot that had been planted there and a bizarre piece of ribbon with the word Vietnam written on it and tied to a tree at another spot. So they were obviously some sort of clues, but they figured they'd probably been tampered with by the person who'd orchestrated this whole thing. And watched the thing on the news. Mm Mm-hmm. And went, okay, things have gone pear-shaped. This whole plan's fall apart. Someone go and collect up all the keys and the clues, please. So that didn't give them any help. Brian's home was also searched very thoroughly and there was zero evidence there that he'd made the bomb himself or that he had any plans for any kind of bank heist. His friends and family and even his landlady, they all told the cops he was a gentle, kind, sweet man who just loved his cats and kept to himself and wasn't in any debt. He was very content with his life Hated as banks. a pizza delivery man. Wasn't known for having a vendetta against any particular banks, mm. no. Um, everyone who knew him said they really believed he must have been attacked and forced into robbing the bank. Mamma Mia's pizzeria was also given a rigorous search and Brian's co-workers confirmed the story about, you know, the delivery order Mm -hmm. that Brian got to this strange address they'd never heard of before. They traced the phone records of the call, the place that order found it came from a public payphone. So that didn't lead them anywhere. Did they call the payphone? Have you ever tried to do that? I haven't personally, but Rosie and Caleb, where they live in South Melbourne, there's a payphone out the front of their place. Somehow they managed to access the phone number for it. When they're bored, they just sit in their lounge room, wait for people to walk past and ring the number to see who answers it. (laughs) I love this game. And see where the conversation can lead from there. And um, That's a podcast. Right. That's a TV show. That's like a little 15-minute job. You just flick it on and you're like, who's been on the phone this week? Mm -hmm. Far out. That's great. How did they get the phone number? I have absolutely no idea. We need it just the gist on that. Yeah. All of Brian's colleagues were asked to set up appointments to come in and be interviewed formally by agents from the FBI. And the only other delivery boy at Mamma Mia's, a guy called Robert, scheduled his appointment for Monday morning because he felt he wasn't in a fit state to talk about it on Friday. And then he died of a drug overdose on the Sunday night before his interview. So the FBI never got the chance to talk to him. People said, yes, he had been acting very tense, very anxious since the day the heist happened, but everyone just sort of put that down to him being upset that his friend, his co-worker... There's a few layers there, isn't there? It's like what co-worker gets blown up. Mm -hmm. He could have been the delivery driver who got put in that situation, like a bit of survivor's remorse. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was a drug user who just was trying to cope with his feelings and emotions on Sunday. And that's what they put it down to. Oh, they did put that down to that? Yeah. Also, sus as though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a big coincidence to have the two delivery guys from the same pizzeria die in the space of three days of each other, but they decided, look, we've got no evidence that this is a suicide. We also can't find evidence of foul play, so we're just going to have to call it an accidental overdose. Of course, they inspected the collar bomb itself very closely. It was very, very convoluted, as I mentioned. It had clearly been designed with the intention of tricking anyone who tried to disarm it. 
So there were like red herring type warnings. So there was full booby traps and stuff in there. It claimed to have booby traps. There weren't any real booby traps, but it had warnings all over it. Point arrows pointing to cords that weren't actually connected to anything. Um, There was a phone inside the main box as well. According to the notes Brian had been given, the phone would be used to detonate the bomb remotely if necessary, but it turned out the phone was just a toy. So the whole thing was overcomplicated. Big ruse. It take someone a long time to figure out, yes, how to disarm it. They could tell, obviously, whoever had made this device was someone who had a lot of time on their hands, so probably unemployed. Sorry. Someone very handy who was very good with tools, knew all about mechanical stuff, that's obvious. And also someone very creative and very frugal because they've been able to use very cheap parts in a very innovative way. Sounds like a lawn bowler, if you ask me. There we go. Someone who also likes lawn bowls. Sorry to all the lawn bowlers out there, but, I mean, the stories match up. Lots of time. Got lots of time. They're lawn bowling on a Wednesday. (laughs) Frugal. Beers at lawn bowls are like $2. That's And, like, very resourceful. How do they keep the grass so short but so green with such a small shed? You could have been an FBI profiler. Lawn bowler. They had their profile of their potential lawn bowler bowler. who built this bomb, but that really just wasn't taking them anywhere for the first three weeks. They had no leads. And like I said, there was no evidence of Brian being involved in planning the heist at all. Uh, In fact, it seemed like there were signs of a struggle left in the dirt at the transmission tower where he'd gone to deliver the pizzas, oh, they found his footprints, so they thought, okay, it's highly likely that he has been attacked. So the story about him being ambushed led to him being treated as a victim, and his death was also ruled to be a murder because it became increasingly obvious that he was intended to die from the very beginning. So oh. the cops did a few run-throughs of the scavenger hunt Brian was intended to go on had he not been intercepted by the police, and they found that no one would ever have been able to complete the challenge in the time allocated before the bomb went off. So when that bomb went around his neck, it really was a death sentence. So Brian's family held his funeral. They were very upset because Brian's corpse had to be decapitated to get the collar bomb off in one piece, which meant they couldn't have an open casket funeral. They were also furious at the police and at that bomb squad for not doing more and not being quick enough to do anything to even try to save Brian's life. They just left him there in the middle of the car park. And they were also very annoyed that they had absolutely no suspects in the case, which they didn't have right up until late September. No leads whatsoever. And they had searched the homes of every black person Brian had ever encountered because that was the only thing they had to go off. Surely he wouldn't have ever met the person. He would have said, I know the person. It's these people. Mm -hmm. Not like black, just, yeah, okay, right. He said they were strangers, but black was the one clue they had to go off. And in 2003 in Pennsylvania, that was okay. And that was enough for them to go and get warrants. Anyway, then... A very surprising phone call set the cops on a path that would lead to uncovering a whole trail of crimes, not just this one. Wasn't anonymous. The guy that called them up was a man named Bill Rothstein, and on the 20th September, he rang 911 and said he'd called to report a dead human body that he'd been keeping in his freezer for the last month or so. The 
911 operator went into a little bit of shock but tried to get as many details as she could, including all the information that Bill started offering about who'd killed the person whose corpse was in his freezer. He said it was his old friend slash ex-fiance Marjorie and told them Marjorie had shot and killed her current boyfriend, now deceased, Jim, and then she'd called up Bill and asked him for help getting rid of the body. Okay, so Bill, stranger, mm-hmm. Bill calls 911, mm-hmm. body in my fridge. That's right. The body in the fridge, Bill's ex-girlfriend's new partner mm-hmm. shot. Jim. He got shot. So Jim got shot. Yep. Put in the fridge. Yep. Hey, Bill, I still love you. Mm-hmm. You want to do me a solid? <laughs> Hide the body of the new boyfriend. You've got it. Far out. That's like, let's go to therapy, everyone. Didn't seem like it was in any way connected to the pizza bomber heist. Oh, this is just random. Mm-hmm. They had no idea that there was any sort of connection, but just you wait and see what happens. Where is this place? Summer Bay. All this <laughs> real weird stuff happening. Well, the place is called Eerie. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, actually. What's yeah. that? Nominative determinism. Yeah. The investigators got out to Bill's place as soon as possible. Marjorie was there, and to her great surprise, she was taken into custody for having killed her boyfriend, while Bill happily gave the cops the grand tour of his place. Yeah, here's my body fridge. He's like, <laughs> whatever. Down in the basement. Yeah, it was one of those tub freezers. From the second they crossed the threshold, it was immediately obvious this man had a serious problem with hoarding. The place was absolutely packed with garbage and it stank like a tip. So they all covered their noses. Siri, just Siri, also a fan I of said the story. It stank like a tip, Siri. <laughs> Finding your local tips. <laughs> um, so they covered their noses. They walked through to get to the reason that they were there, which was this industrial-sized freezer. Body fridge. Bill opened it and showed them the body of a man. He said was Jim. And Jim was tucked into a fetal position, wrapped up in black plastic and frozen solid. He'd been there for about a month. Oh, my gosh. Uh Uh-huh. And Bill was super cooperative. He gave the cops all the dates, all the times, told them Marjorie would paid him two grand to keep the body in the freezer for her. The money true values in this story are just not high enough for my liking. I'm right there with you. Um, He did also say, though, he would have done it for free because he just felt really sorry for Marjorie that she'd found herself in that position. Oh, right. Yep. Mate, Um, found herself in that position. She shot someone. Right. That's not a position she found herself in. She shot someone and then didn't call the cops and say, oh, I've been a victim of DV or anything like that. She's like, no, no, now I want to hide the body. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Let's just put a pin in that and circle back to it in a bit because Jim might play a bigger role than you even realise. Jimbo, what a sus unit. So Jim's body was meant to just stay there in the freezer until they had time to saw it up into pieces, put it through a meat grinder, maybe an ice crusher. So they planned to get rid of it. Dispose of him. Yep. But then while they were searching his house, um, Bill made it very clear that he'd had a change of heart. He felt super remorseful about what they'd done to Jim's body. And to show how remorseful he was, he made sure the cops had found two very specific items in his house, one of which was a suicide note he'd handwritten. The other was a bag full of blood with a razor blade 
at the bottom that he thought was going to be sufficient proof to show them that he had tried to take his own life because once they'd confirmed they'd found those items, he said, yeah, I felt so bad about hiding this body. I did try to cut my wrists, but I didn't Fake suicide. Why was he keeping the blood? Fake suicide. 100% fake. Yeah. 100%. He obviously had this strange assumption that the court was going to be more lenient on him for the crimes if it's he'd like, shown oh, yeah. how dramatically remorseful he was. The further this story goes, the more I want to throw up. This is like <laughs> so grim. <laughs> this is like great. You haven't even met all the characters yet, my friend. Oh my friend. gosh. Yeah. That suicide note he'd written turned out to be <gasps> the first proper clue that would help solve the mystery of the pizza bomber. Because at the very beginning of the suicide note, Bill opened with the disclaimer, this has nothing to do with Brian Wells' death. What? <laughs> Bill! Apropos of nothing. What do you mean? Uh-huh. Don't and mention it, mate. Uh-huh. What are you thinking? And they asked him, why would you write something like that? And he was like, oh, I just, I didn't want you wasting your time. Or anything. So I just thought I'd put that out there straight away. You'd find my body. I wouldn't want you investigating and trying to draw connections that are not there. They're definitely not there. They're not there. Stop looking. Don't look over there. Uh uh. And so, of course, for the FBI, they're like, well, you're our guy. You're the one we're going to be investigating from here on out. We were looking very, very close at you. Bill, you idiot. Wouldn't you know? That's when they put two and two together that the TV transmission tower was just down the street from Bill's house. So the place where Brian had had the bomb attached yep. was within a very short walk of where they were currently standing. Oh, my gosh. So Bill was now the prime and Suspect, suspect. numero one. Uh-huh. That's right. What about... Um, no, I'll save that question, actually. Keep going. Okay. Meanwhile, Marjorie charged with... Murdering her boyfriend, Jim, she was a very, very unwell woman. Lots of mental health diagnoses, bipolar, narcissistic personality disorder. It's actually really sad that she wasn't given the help she needed over the course of decades. She was sort of left to kind of fend for herself and she wasn't doing a really great job of it. When they went and saw her home, they found that she was an even worse hoarder than Bill. She'd reached the hoarding level where she had dead cats tucked away oh. in some of the rooms around the place. It was absolutely What found. is happening in Erie, Pennsylvania, when it comes to societal care? Bomb squad can't get through traffic, no mental health services. If you're there and you're listening to this podcast, move. Yeah, well, <laughs> just that's move. the problem. So many people have been moving. They've been a shrinking city for the last few ah. decades. So they have been really, really struggling as like industries Resources and resources. Move away. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, poverty there has become a really big problem. And it is one of the centers of the opioid epidemic right. as well. Yeah. So from the minute she'd been arrested, Marge was claiming that she'd been framed by Bill, and she said he was the real Fair killer. play, actually. She said he'd set her up and he'd killed not only her boyfriend, Jim, but he'd also killed Brian Wells. So now they were really starting to get somewhere oh, so they Bri- now had. Bill said not nothing to do with it, and Marjorie's like, killed the other bloke too. Yep. Out of the blue, just volunteered that information. Oh, I didn't know about the... He killed Jim and he killed Brian Wells. Yep. She didn't know about the suicide note at all. So they had these three hints that Bill might be involved, but it was all still circumstantial 
evidence and Bill, of course, denied any involvement in the heist. He'd written it there in the notes. He said it was nothing to do do with with it. it. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't have anything to do with this. So they needed to hunt for a bit more and over the next few days they scoured Bill's house and Marjorie's house going through all of that rotting food and garbage and mummified pets that they'd been hoarding over the course of decades and they were looking for any evidence that might relate to either the frozen body case or to the pizza bomb case, potentially both. And they found a few items at Bill's that he'd drawn on with a Sharpie and his markings, the way he drew arrows, just looked too similar to markings on the collar bomb for them to ignore. Still not enough to indict him, though. Marjorie ended up pleading guilty to killing her boyfriend, Jim. She was sentenced to only seven years in prison. Very, very lenient because she used her mental illness as a defence. P.S. This was the second boyfriend she'd pled guilty to shooting and killing. Mm-hmm. First oh, one. What are we doing here? She, <laughs> she was declared not guilty because it was self-defense the first time. Oh, okay, right. But this guy, Jim, was the fifth man in her life to die under strange and violent circumstances. Fifth. Fifth, yes. So Marjorie fifth. had a nickname <laughs> as the Black Widow and she had earned that Sick reputation. Sick nickname, though. Uh-huh. Sick nickname. Well, that's cool. I mean, not for the people that she dated, mm-hmm. but cool nickname. If you've got Scarlett Johansson in your mind, though, think the opposite <laughs> of Scarlett Johansson in terms of physical appearance and charm and charisma. Very, very, very different Black Widows, these two. Okay, mm-hmm. right. Okay, yep. gotcha. <laughs> Now, Bill was let out on bond, um, and after a few weeks, despite the shreds of evidence they had against him, he was also cleared as a suspect in the pizza bomb heist and Brian's murder. But then, thankfully, a civilian documentarian slash citizen detective gave the FBI a reason to circle back to Bill. So this guy, Trey... He'd started working on a documentary about the pizza bomber case that would end up becoming Evil Genius, the documentary I mentioned earlier. And when he was reviewing his footage, he clocked that Bill owned a van that might have been a van that was seen fleeing from one of the scavenger hunt locations on the day of the heist. So that was something that they didn't really bother investigating at the time, and now that this guy had put two and two together, it did kind of seem like a stretch, but it was enough to put Bill back on the suspect list. Back on the radar. They went back and revisited all the notes Brian had been given on the day he died, and they found these imprints of what looked like Bill's handwriting on them from, like, pages higher up yes. in the pad. And so now they had enough pieces of evidence that they felt, yep, we can put together a case against this guy. However... By this time, and this is now July 2004, it's still less than a year after the heist, Bill was in hospital on his deathbed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they knew he didn't have long, so they went to see him in the hospital and said, this is your chance to confess. These things happen all the time on deathbeds. We're pretty sure you did this. Would you like to come clean? He basically told them to piss off. And then it's got nothing to do with it, guys. He was dead. So that could have been a permanent roadblock for the investigation. It was looking like they may never truly solve the case. Their only suspect was dead and they couldn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was guilty. Mm. And they had no other leads they could follow. This is giving me the creeps. (laughs) 
the only hope they had was putting the case out on TV shows like America's Most Wanted every few months. Um, but that definitely wasn't giving them many helpful leads. So then they got a lucky break. Again. Another one. Because prisoners in prison have a tendency, you might know this, they like to get chatty and sometimes even a little boastful, boastful. when it comes to talking about their crimes. And when those prisoners get chatty and boastful, it often means that snitches see an opportunity for themselves to yes. get their sentences reduced by reporting what they've heard to the screws. Now, some of the inmates who were in prison with Marjorie came forward to share what old Marge had told them about the heist. Apparently, she frequently laughed when she'd talked to her cellmates about some of the very dark details, like how they'd measured Brian's neck before they built the collar bomb <sighs> in the first place. And what? they were like, what? How? And she was like, yeah, he was in on the whole thing from the beginning. So Brian that, was in on it. The bomb was tailor-made for Brian. So that was a very unexpected, unexpected twist for these women who were hearing these words come out of Marge's mouth. She cackled at how hilarious she thought that the cops hadn't figured out Brian was in on the scam from the very because beginning. Because the bomb fit his neck? Mm-hmm. Apparently, he'd been there for a bunch of planning meetings, according to her. The thing was, though, Brian didn't know it was going to be a real bomb. He'd thought the entire way through. Black Widow was like, I don't care if I kill you. I've killed heaps of people. That's right. Best to just eliminate this guy. What? Sadistic person. Yep. So, very explosive revelations, but possibly because those snitches were women and possibly because they were convicts, probably a combination of both, their statements were ignored for months. And months. That's wild. So is Bill in it too? Was Bill? She was saying she was so Marjorie's about like Bill's involvement. Marjorie, Bill, and Brian all in it together. That's right. But Brian less in it, mm-hmm. or more in it, depending on your viewpoint. Yes. Now, what Marge was telling the authorities, the cops, the investigators, mm. very different to what she was telling the inmates. So she okay. was giving them candid insights into what it was like to measure Brian's neck and to design the scavenger hunt that the poor fellow was going to have to go through, whereas to the authority she was telling them it was all Bill. I do know a bit about it, but I was absolutely what Bill not told involved. Me. Oh, Bill told me this. I don't know anything else about it, though, but Bill told me, did tell me this, though? Mm-hmm. And then she started telling the authorities about a couple of other men she knew were involved, and she said she'd give further information in return for some favours to the FBI. seven-year sentence. She wanted to be moved to a more comfortable location. Marge started handing over names and details of other people that were involved in the heist with Bill. Wait, so she admitted that she knew or she's just like... She knew. No involvement. She just knew. So she's like, Bill told me about this guy. Exactly. Yes. Oh, come on. She told them about this guy, Ken, who was an old fishing buddy of Marge's. He was the local crack dealer in Erie, Pennsylvania, and he was proudly known as Cocaine Ken. To me, the biggest crime in this whole thing is that he didn't go by Cocaine. Yeah, yeah, it's his it missed, was it. missed opportunity. Right there, buddy. <laughs> the other guy she implicated was called Floyd, and he was Bill's roommate at the time of the heist. Oh. Now, both of those men were questioned after Marjorie threw them under the bus, and they decided if she was going to destroy them, they were going to drag her down with them. 
Now, those men were in two separate prisons. They had no way of communicating with each other. The statements that they ended up giving to, yes, implicate themselves, but more importantly, condemn Marjorie for her involvement were very, very similar. They started off saying Marjorie is the mastermind who came up with this entire scheme. She wanted to hire an assassin to kill her father so she'd get the inheritance from him before he managed to spend it all. Koken was the assassin she okay. wanted to engage. Right, you're like drug dealer, assassin, very mm-hmm. linked. Yep, crime. You're a crime person. I got it. So many skills. You know what that's like. Yeah, Physio, absolutely. lacrosse, podcast. He's a slasher. Box. Yes. Slasher. Um, to pay him for the gig, she needed cash. His asking price was $250,000. The best option for her was obviously, rob a bank. Obviously an elaborate plan. (laughs) (laughs) The obvious answer is put my friend in a bomb collar and then Mm -hmm. send him on um, on a heist. Duh. She knew exactly which (laughs) bank she wanted to target as well. It just felt right to her that she go Uh, after PNC Bank because she had a vendetta against them. She did actually hate the bank. Mm -hmm. This particular one, she'd been sending them threatening letters because that allowed her father, who she was planning to have killed, that allowed him to take her mother's jewels out of a safe deposit box before Marge could get her hands on them. So she wanted to target them first and foremost. Does it seem strange that Marge really doesn't seem to have that much of an aversion to killing people, but was like, I need an assassin to kill my dad? Yep. Just. Like, what? That Mm -hmm. seems like an odd twist. No big deal. Keep in mind... Five men that she was in relationships with died in violent and strange circumstances. Absolutely. Like, she just clearly is like, I kill people. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not a thing for me. Mm -hmm. But her dad, she's like, no, I can't kill my dad. I'm not an animal. (laughs) Well, this is the funny thing, though. In her defense, when this was put to her, this allegation, she said, I would do it myself. If I really wanted to have my dad taken out, I would do it myself. Think about it. Five men have died. Two of them I've confessed to shooting. She says this on camera in the documentary. So her defence is, well, I can't be involved because I I actually kill people. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about <laughs> killing people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's different. Yep. She doesn't believe in outsourcing when it comes to murder, <laughs> according to her. <laughs> no delegation. Mm-mm-mm. Skills to work on. Delegation. Yeah. Um, now, according to these men's stories, Marjorie came up with the whole plan to target PNC Bank with this bomb concept. So she needed to get Bill on board for that to actually make the collar bomb. And he was convinced to get on board because she promised him she'd give him the money he needed to be able to buy the house he was renting from his brother because his brother was threatening to kick him out, which meant also getting rid of all the hoarded garbage he had in there. So he took on the job with the promise of money and he was the one who also designed the entire scavenger hunt. He was the one who wrote out all of the very verbose notes because he also was someone with narcissistic tendencies who wanted to show off how intelligent he was. She had her boyfriend Jim on board. He was going to be the getaway driver, but then he decided he wasn't going to participate a couple of weeks before the heist. And so, of course, she had to shoot him to keep him quiet. You're so dead. how Jim ended up in that freezer. She needed then the victim, and this needed to be someone who couldn't be traced to any of them. This was going to be the person who'd actually walk into the bank wearing the bomb. Somehow she found Brian and she got him to agree to do the robbery by promising she'd make him a very rich man once she had his inheritance. We don't know exactly how she connected with Brian, but these two men, Kokan and mm. 
employed the roommate, said he was definitely in for at least a month before Which explains heist. why Brian was so chill because he thought mm. the bomb was fake. Mm-hmm. But the bomb was real. So he's like, hey, guys, this is a bomb on me. Like, get it off. Mm-hmm. But then when it really started beeping, he's like, oh, actually, I've been really set up. That's right. By the Black Widow. Mm-hmm. Although, according to this version of events that these guys told, he was informed that the bomb was going to be a real bomb for the first time as they were putting it on him, which is why he started trying to struggle and fight back. Oh, Both of these men, cocaine They were the guys who put it on him. There. Yep. And So it wasn't... Oh, interesting. Bill was there. Marjorie was there. There's a bit of discrepancy over who actually Clipped clamped it. the thing onto his neck and who was holding him down. But the two men agreed that Bill had fired a gun in the air to calm the situation down and to try to get Brian Is to Bill's stop still alive? struggling. Oh, no, he died. Yep, Bill had died right. in less than a year. Um, and then it was Marjorie who put the T-shirt over the top of the bomb. And she was the one who said, if you get stopped by the cops, remember, tell them it was a group of black guys that you've never seen before. Don't tell them it was us. Yes. So apparently he was aware that it was a real bomb bomb and he was terrified. He was just very good at concealing it, I guess. Oh, my gosh. And this went on to television. Yes. That's so cool. Children saw it. Yes. And like I said, still available if you do want to watch it. You can. It's difficult to watch. Have you watched it? I have only because I watched the Evil Genius documentary. Oh, because you said it's on Evil Genius and it just happens. There's no warning, but I think if you just fast forward or look away if you don't want to see it, once the device starts beeping about five minutes later, you're going to be safe. Yep. Yep. And then they don't show the full thing again. They blur it out anytime they go back to it throughout the rest of the documentary. So... These two men's testimonies, similar enough to stand up in court, so they were going to be used as evidence. And Marjorie was accused, she was tried, and she was found guilty for being the main perpetrator of the heist, but not of the murder of Brian Wells. Okay. Which is partly because it's kind of unclear what his involvement was, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Marjorie's sentence was life in prison plus a couple of extra decades just to make sure she was never going to be free. And that was on top of the sentence she was already The seven serving, years, obviously, on top of the seven years. Gene. Yep. The two arguments she maintained throughout the trial to try to protect herself were, number one, she was innocent. She knew about the heist, but she hadn't been involved herself. She definitely wasn't the mastermind. The other thing was she was dead certain Brian absolutely was a co-conspirator who was in on the heist from the very beginning. I know nothing except that Brian was in on it. That's right. He was there that day. He was there for the planning session the day before. Did the other guys say Brian was in? Co-Ken and... Yeah, okay. All of them wanted Brian to be involved. They needed Brian to be involved because if he was just an innocent bystander and not a co-conspirator, there was the potential that, in particular, Marjorie could be sentenced to the death penalty. And that was something they were all fearful of. So it worked in all of their favours if he was classified as a co-conspirator as opposed to someone who'd literally just shown up to deliver a pizza and then had been accosted and the bomb attached to his neck and forced into doing something he didn't want to do and then was killed. In cold blood. So co-conspirator, it's like, oh, well, you're collateral damage to this whole thing. That's right. 
it's very okay. unfortunate what happened to you, but you kind of brought it on yourself and therefore yeah. the perpetrators are going to be treated differently and the punishment's going to be quite different. And the FBI ended up deciding that their official position was that, yes, Brian was a co-conspirator. I mean, wow. if they were going to accept cocaine and Floyd and what they'd said about Marjorie, they also had to accept what they were saying about Brian was their point of view. Not really a lot of evidence because it was just the three felons testimony and then that was backed up by something very questionable. A witness said that they'd seen Brian driving away from Bill's house down mm -hmm. the road from the TV transmission tower where there was allegedly a planning meeting the day before the heist. I mean, that's pretty tenuous that's, yeah, yeah, anyway. That's um, also, there was a very loose connection that Brian had to cocaine through one of their mutual friends. So Brian's family were livid that Brian's reputation was being tarnished in this way and that he was now implicated as a criminal. They fought against this as hard as they could, but to this day, Brian's officially listed as a co-conspirator in the crime. But then one of Brian's friends came forward. Her name was Jessica. She happened to be a sex worker. He engaged fairly frequently and they developed a relationship, a friendship, and she wanted to set the record straight. She'd been following the case from the very beginning. She knew all the people involved in Erie. She'd even served some time in the same prison as Marge a few years. She knows after the it heist. all. Mm -hmm. And she'd even requested a transfer when she was in the same prison. She's as like, I Marge know, Marge. Because, the Black Widow kills oh, yeah. people for fun. Get me away from her. And Marge was directly threatening her as well because Marge she knew, knew what Jessica knew. Yes. So Jessica approached Trey, the documentarian who made Evil Genius. Is she in the docker? She is, oh, yes. And in the documentary, she's revealing that it was her fault that Brian was brought into the whole mess <gasps> and said that Brian had absolutely no clue what was going on. What? She said she'd been offered a few thousand bucks if she could provide someone who would cluelessly stumble into their web by, say, delivering a pizza so that they'd be able to clamp, clamp a bomb to this guy's neck and force him to rob a bank. She told Trey that she'd given them Brian's name and his work schedule in return for some crack cocaine and that that choice had haunted her ever oh my since. Gosh. So the, the three criminals had said after they clamped it, Mm -hmm. They're like, right, if we ever get caught, our story is he was involved. That's right. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't involved. He wasn't involved, no. Just an innocent guy. Mm -hmm. They also, I forgot to mention oh. this, they implicated Robert, the other pizza delivery guy yep. who died of an overdose. Yes. And Coken and Floyd, the roommate, said that Marjorie and Bill were the ones who broke into his house and injected him with the overdose because oh. he actually didn't have any... Um, no drug can, no drug history or anything? No, and he wasn't known. It was methadone he'd OD'd on and no one was aware of him taking methadone at all or having any sort of opioid So problem. they just went ham mm -hmm. and killed heaps of innocent people too? That's Well, innocent, we're not sure because Robert apparently was involved in planning the heist as well. Oh, of course. Uh, what? Yeah, grim. Now, when this came out from Jessica, Brian's family were like, we told you he was a sweet, innocent man, haha, -ha, vindication. But the FBI were like, yeah, well, look, we really don't know whether we can yeah, trust this testimony. Yeah, we're not changing testimony. that story. Yeah. It's, you know, it 
It's just what's in it for Jessica though? In a documentary. Like, well, that was their argument that she really hates Marge and maybe she wants Marge to get the death penalty. Uh, and so she's okay. coming forward, hoping that Marge could end up getting executed, which would be a great form of revenge. So many layers. Yeah. Also, she had affection for this guy, and she's kind of got nothing to lose by coming forward and saying, "Yeah, um, he was totally innocent." There's even an implication in the documentary that she might be the mother of his child, which oh, <laughs> hasn't been what? proven. Yeah, all of that comes in like the final ten minutes of the final. <laughs> they really just rushed that of, part out at the end. Yeah, well, it was obviously a last minute thing that just oh, got in touch with days. this guy. As he was putting the finishing touch on the documentary, she was like, hey, how about I give you a cherry to put on top Heard of that? you making a docker. Got mm. some info. Yeah. So nothing changed. Brian's still listed as a co-conspirator even after that. Do you so, think, Do you think he is? Well, this is what I wanted to ask you to answer first. I don't want to sway you. Do you think after everything you've heard that he was innocent or that he was involved? I think... And can I just say, either way, it's terrible. The circumstances under which he died, awful 100%. and tragic. Heartbreaks for the family. But was he involved in the planning or was he just pulled into something he had no idea about? I think he may... Mm, two arguments. Very relaxed mm-hmm. because he was involved. Mm-hmm. Didn't think it was real. So he's kind of not worried. Mm-hmm. But... If if the argument was that he, like there was a there was a clip, like he found out that it was real mm. towards the end, like those other guys said, and that's why there was a struggle. Mm. Still, why would he be so chill? Mm-hmm. So, did he know that it was a real bomb, or did he just think that it wasn't a real bomb till the end? Mm-hmm. That leads me to think that he, well, he was either that or he was just a a bit dim. And then kind of like not really comprehending mm. the whole, for whatever reason, um, maybe, you know, yeah, for whatever reason, just didn't quite comprehend the whole situation he was finding himself in, in which case it makes it really, really sad. Mm-hmm. But I think from what you've said, I reckon he was in on it. I think the behavior of when you have a bomb around your neck mm-hmm. to never be stressed, mm-hmm. I think that says you're involved. Okay. What do you think? I think he was totally innocent. Oh. One of the big things that people point to when they say they think he was involved is the fact that he said it was four strange black guys who put this on me in the car park. Surely, if he had have been innocent at that point, he would have said it was... It was these people, yeah. And he'd throw them all under the bus. Like, he's really got nothing to lose at that point. The fact that he said it was these four black guys, he followed Marjorie's instructions, I think that indicates that he truly believed that they had eyeballs on him and they could detonate the bomb at any point. I really think that from the very beginning, he just had no idea what he was stumbling into. Like, yeah. The fact that he'd had to write down the directions to get to the TV tower, it was obviously somewhere he'd never been before. So yep. the talk about him having been at Bill's house and having gone and done yes. a dress rehearsal earlier, that doesn't really check out for me. The signs of the struggle at the TV tower, they kind of back up for me that, yes, he was just sort of spontaneously attacked. Also, Koken, in one of his testimonies, he was talking about how when Brian arrived, they all started eating the pizza and he was asking them for the money. 
Like, why would he bother oh. to ask for the cash unless he was making a legitimate That's pizza interesting. delivery? Yeah. He wouldn't be expecting to get paid if he knew that he was about to have a bomb put on him and he was heading off to the and bank super to commit relaxed a robbery. And then, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, why would anyone agree to this super risky plan as well? To be that guy too. Yeah. To be the person in the thing. So to me, it makes a lot more sense that Brian was just a patsy who was dragged into this. Sad. Um, which makes it very, very, very tragic. It's still very sad even if he was involved mm. to some degree. But, I mean, it, like I said, it works in favour of some of the, um, the worst perpetrators in this, including Marjorie. That um, That's actually a really good point, is that if he's involved, that is the benefit of the doubt to mm. the worst people in this story. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting. You, you know what? You've probably sold me on more that he's more mm. innocent when it's presented like that. I think that's probably – that would be my big turner. It's uh-huh. like, well, who am I going to believe? Mm. All these people who just like openly kill people and lie or everyone who talks about Brian is like, oh, he's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a choice you can all make. And if you want to get more informed, obviously you can watch the Evil Genius documentary in four parts on Netflix. Um, It goes into quite a bit of detail of Marjorie's history. She is the evil genius that they're profiling in that documentary. Like I said as well, Jerry Clark, the lead investigator, wrote... (laughs) Nice, Siri. Thanks. What did you find on the web? Oh, she looked up Evil Genius for me. She's actually never been this helpful before. <laughs> I don't know what she's going through right now. Um, I hope it's just a phase. Um, uh, yeah, he's written two books, one specifically about Marjorie called Mania and one called Pizza Bomber. Um, and then there's also a really great episode of Dateline that was made several years later and goes back and interviews all the different players and, um, you know, reveals certain things that have come out about the case over the last little while. And if I haven't mentioned, Marjorie died in 2018 of breast cancer. So that's another reason that we're, we're just never going to know. The real truth. one for the ether. About this, yeah. And there are several other mysteries as well. You'll find out about them if you go and watch the documentary. I've tried to give you just the gist, but we'll we'll give you links to more if you want more. So that was just the gist of the pizza bomber slash collar bomb heist in Erie, Pennsylvania, 2003. That was incredible. Thank you so much for coming on board and thank you for reintroducing the word grouse to my vocabulary. <laughs> I have gone a long time without it. Use it. Use it freely. back on high rotation. Um, you've mentioned your podcast already, but maybe just one more time, tell us where can people find you? Yeah, it's called The Adam and Simon Show uh, on Instagram. It's just Adam and Simon. Simon spelled with a Y. Uh, I think we're going to play some though, so you can... Listen here, and if you like that, tune in and listen every week. We're on Tuesdays, and we do an interview on Thursdays. Simon with a Y, thank you so, so much. We really do appreciate it, and who knows, maybe you'll be back. Hope so. We'll see. You're a Gistner now. You're part of the family. That's a great line. Mm -hmm. And I'm a showy. Brilliant. Yeah, and you're a showy. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yep. Yep. All right. See you, everyone. Here we go. Adam, I'm not sure what's happened recently, but ever since I held your baby Celia... I've been bombarded with kids' content on the internet. <laughs> That's how the algorithm works, my bombarded. friend. Bombarded. Like they know there's been so much baby chat around that 
I don't know, I put up that post and there was like all these comments and everyone's like, congratulations. Yeah. I didn't do anything but everyone was still congratulating me. It was very wild. I mean, you did congratulate yourself in the post. Oh, well, yeah. Look, I so, think we all did a great job. So people got on board, you getting on board yourself. Yeah. There are, you got 54 comments. Yeah. And they're all like, congratulations. But now all I get, now my all of my reels and my TikToks are all like kids' advice. Yeah. I am on Kid Talk. Me too. Well, Me that too. makes sense. You have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> that, I don't have a baby. Go, I shouldn't be on there. Going on to my search function right now, the first reel I have is one that says when you're almost fast asleep and then this happens and it's a baby that sneezes itself awake. And then are you like, oh, classic. That is a, such a classic baby <laughs> thing to do. No, mine's not necessarily like kids doing funny things. Mine's proper parent education. Advice. TikTok. <laughs> yeah, right. Like I'm scrolling and they're like, is your baby doing this? No, don't have a baby. My <laughs> friend's got a baby. I don't have a baby. But you did send one to me. Yeah, because I don't know what to do with this information. I watch them and think, oh, that's great. Like people should know about this. So I've brought it to the podcast. Yes. I've collated a few of them. Right. And I want to give you the advice that I'm getting okay. about how to raise a kid on TikTok. All right. Okay, first lesson. Um, when Celia is climbing or standing, you should never intervene in a task she feels that she can do. Well, she, she can't walk so yet. So she's not at the, not at the climbing stage. So I, that is not a piece of advice that I need. So that's not one for you? Now, no, too early? not for me. Yeah, too okay. early. When you're going to the beach with Celia... Yep, yep. Tiff, you, got a beach near us and we'll take her to the beach. You should take a big mesh bag to put her toys in. Uh, again, not playing with toys yet. <laughs> Still too Can't small. see anything further than like six inches away. <laughs> okay. And this is the other thing that I don't know. I don't know which ones are relevant, so I don't know which ones okay. to send through to you. So I'm just giving you all of them. But what you do, you take the toys, you put them in a mesh bag and then yeah. you pick it up and shake all the sand off That's and then you good. can take it home. Useful for... A couple of years. Yeah. Right, I'll put or, this one on the bench. Yeah, maybe a year. Six okay. months to a year. I've figured out how to get a kid's seat on the plane. That's good. So, oh, actually, no, not important yet. So when you you basically buy like a little wheelie trolley from like a Bunnings or something like that, I mean a large hardware store, Yeah. Uh, and then you wheel the seat, you just clip the seat on and then you take the seat off and you put it in the aeroplane seat and then right. she can go on there. But I mean at the moment she's one, not flying anywhere because she's three weeks old. Yep. But two... How old can you start flying? I think they have to start charging you, I think, when they're over a year. Oh, right. I don't know. But, again, not relevant for me right now. Okay. So none of these tips are helpful. So why am I on, like, toddler talk? This is so weird. Okay, here's, a, here's one that may work for it. If you're ever finding that Celia is, like, messing up things that you have already ordered, so, you know, pulling stuff out of cupboards and things right. like that... Right, if the plates are... If the cups are all in the cupboard and she's pulling them out. That is that is a de- de- developmental stage. So what you need to do is recreate that with things that you don't care if they get messy. So there's things called like a magic tissue box where you like t- put heaps of scarves in a box right. and you go, here you go, Celia. Like you can magician. just like pull these out and then Celia will love it because like they love going from things that are ordered to now make a mess. Look at me make mess. Right. And then the next developmental stage is to restore the mess and to pack it all away. Ah. Is that one more up your alley? Useless. Again, like well, useful. What ad- does she do? <laughs> You've held it. Not she much. And was very cute. Yeah, mm. that's, that's it. Right. Okay. Have you got any more? I've got. I do actually have one more. Okay. Okay. Because at the moment, useless for me. When bathing newborns, this is good because mm. it actually oh, had newborns true. in there. Yep. You cover them with a wet 
muslin cloth. Muslin. Muslin cloth. <laughs> I didn't know how to say it. With a wet. <laughs> with Trying a, to be politically correct. <laughs> well, I actually typed on here. Yeah, how anyway. to pronounce muslin. Yeah. Muslin cloth to keep them warm and secure. So you put them in their bay. Do you have a chair for the bath? Yeah, keep going. And she I'll sits on there. Have you for you to go through? And then you put the cloth, and then the cloth wets so that you know. You know when you 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 get out of the shower, it's a bit chilly. Yeah. Well, that would be the experience for Celia, I would imagine. Yeah. So you get the wet muslin cloth, put it over <laughs> her. She stays warm. Away we go. We actually got taught that in day two of the hospital. So, so you, you already knew that one. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A wet, okay. a, a heavy wet face washer we generally put over. Okay. So, oh, then, that's what you do. Face washer, yeah. So I'm 0 from 5. Well, I mean, that one's good. Like yeah. it's it's practical. Yeah. But, I mean, we already do it. So we actually take her in the shower rather than the bath. You just – So hold her and I carry her in the shower. Wow. And then because the water like, you know, hits your back and then like rolls down your chest and then yeah. it like rolls – Onto them, and she enjoys. I don't that know that part, but yeah. Much. Well, you know. Okay, you're standing in the shower. Yeah. Water's hitting like your back, and, and then rolling down your chest. Yeah. Imagine there is something against your chest that's stopping the water. Like my hand that cups the water, <laughs> and, like, and then it drops it. It's filling up, and then I yeah. drop it. So you like that? Except instead of doing the dropping part, you yeah. just continue to hold a baby. It hits a baby. Yeah. yeah okay. Nice. Yeah. She I'm tends just... to like the shower more, which is funny because the spray hits her face, and she goes like. Ooh. <laughs> so it's oh, fun for all parties. All right. Well, there you go. So that's um, that's me teaching you how to be a dad. Will I you... will continue to write things down and I'll bring them back to the group. Listener.